Inside the halls of American hospitals, millions of people find comfort, healing, and support. But for many doctors and nurses, this couldn't be further from the truth. This podcast will dive into the shadows of American healthcare to investigate and uncover the abuse, control, and political power plays that leave the very people responsible for our nation's health broken and battered. We're sharing stories of professionals in medicine that have experienced horrendous treatment at the hands of a broken system that does nothing to stop the trauma. As the Association of American Medical Colleges states, long before the Me Too movement, women in medicine have instinctively banded together to counter a culture that too often tolerated harassment. From systemic trauma to abusive power to the unspoken rules of cover-ups and corruption, Mandy Irby and Phoebe will take you to the darkest corners of healthcare in America so you can have an inside look at bringing humanity back to medicine. Sensitive content warning. This podcast will share details of triggering subjects such as sexual assault and workplace violence. So if you aren't in a space to listen, respect your mental health and tune in again at another time. Hey, and welcome back. My name is Mandy. <laughs> and I'm he. He he, how are you? We're doing well. How are you? Great. Great. So today is a really exciting episode. I'm so glad you're listening. Today, you're going to hear a shift in perspective, a shift in perspective on being a nurse. Their perspective has shifted on uh, COVID deniers and anti-vaxxers. Hee hee, we haven't talked about this yet. And some troubling realizations that this COVID charge nurse made this year. And to tell you what happened and her incredible story and perspective, our guest today is COVID charge nurse, Ema from Illinois. Hi, Ema. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. I'll just kind of launch into my story of kind of from the beginning. Um, I uh, got out of college there. I graduated in May 2019. I applied to a job on a respiratory medical surgical unit. Um, I myself have asthma, so I thought that was a field that I was familiar with, something I was passionate about. I started on that unit in August of 2019, coming off orientation in about October. And, you know, it was cold and flu season, so still a little bit busy on that floor, a little bit rough, to be honest. Um, We were a 28-bed unit, so we had every bed filled there in cold and flu season. And then coming out of that, and then January 2020 hit, we started hearing kind of news about the coronavirus coming and how it was the respiratory-borne illness that kind of made me nervous, but we didn't really have to deal with it. Actually, our unit moved um, away from the ICU where we were originally positioned down to a rehab floor, so to kind of protect our respiratory patients from the disease was the idea to keep them very separate. And after that initial like first wave, as we'll call it, it wasn't actually hit very hard in where I am, central Illinois, so they ended up moving us back up to our original floor Um, Things were normal there for a second, and then the summer happened. We had um, our people going outside, contracting COVID. We were then a mixed floor, so we would have patients with COVID and patients with non-COVID mixed on the same floor, obviously not in the same rooms, but it still was a little bit of a change to know that we have this infectious disease right across the street or right across next door. And of course, not allowed to talk about it, but we all kind of knew, and... um, 
a little bit stressful there. And then I would say my actually my first night as lead on the floor was in September, I believe, September 2020. And that was the night we got the um, note from the health supervisor saying you're going to be admitting only COVID patients now. And you're going to be moving all your non-COVID patients off the floor at the same time you're trying to admit all these COVID patients. So we started doubling beds that night. Um, I'm not sure if we got all the way filled up to 28 beds, but um, that was our first all COVID floor, all unit COVID. That was my first night as lead. And it was a little bit intimidating. I was lucky to be trained by some great nurses um, that kind of, you know, let me know how to you know, accept appropriate patient assignments, but then, you know, with COVID, everything changed. The rules and regulations for our floor, the criteria changed almost every shift. So you'd have to ask the incoming day shift, you know, what are the oxygen requirements today? And um, that sort of thing, like, what is the ICU bed availability today? You just have to go day by day and keep it very flexible. And that, that was a little bit, a lot for me. I, at that point, was, what, 23 years old? Um, so I was just learning as I go, trying to, you know, the most important thing as lead is to stay calm. <laughs> so that was a good test of how calm can I remain in situations um, that are pretty intense for people. And at that point, we had a no visitor policy. So all these patients were just with us, especially at night. It was it felt a little bit isolating for them. So we were trying our best to stay communicative with what we were allowed to do. Um, you know, setting up FaceTime with them, um, that sort of thing. I'm trying to remember. It's kind of hard to think back all that way. It feels like years ago, but it was really just last year. <laughs> if we were even allowing end of life, um, one guest for end of life scenarios, I don't think we were at that point. So um, moving in, that's the fall now. We had, um, that was a very busy time on our floor. I think every shift we had, um, a death, either like a planned death, people going on hospice eventually, or we had an RRT, which is a rapid response, meaning someone's declining rapidly and needs immediate intervention or code, cardiac arrest, meaning you're going to be doing CPR on a patient. Um, so that was one, one of those every shift I felt like, and it kept us on our toes for sure. Um, one important thing to note that we are just a med-surge floor. So back before COVID, we had certain criteria that they could not, if they couldn't meet that, or if they were above that, they had to go to um, intermediate or ICU. In the particular place that I worked, we had two ICUs. Um, so that's a total of 24 beds between the two ICUs. And then we had a, just a part of our cardiac floor was intermediate. They had about eight intermediate beds. We really only had 30 something beds to send our patients to beyond us. So once those beds were filled, we were stuck. And um, for a time there, our manager was telling us, okay, we're going to be accepting intermediate patients, um, but our ratios are gonna, only going to be three to one. Which even as she said it, I had to roll my eyes and just die. We can barely keep ourselves staffed as we are, six to one. So um, I already knew that was going to be an issue. They were going to try to keep the beds. We only had about um, six rooms not even that we're close to the desk with windows that we could see into the room without having to open the door. Um, so we're targeting those beds, but it was really difficult to keep beds open as given there was such a shortage. So it was really just um, timing of if someone needs a bed, they're going to take it. Even if they're not intermediate, we cannot hold beds for anybody. 
Um, so we'd end up with intermediate level patients in any room in our floor. And um, how our floor is laid out is that you cannot see every room. There's not monitors in every room. In any of our rooms, we have telemetry monitors, but they're read from the cardiac floor. So we would have to physically enter a room to find out where the beeping is coming from. And the beeps, um, as I remember it, were constant. If it was not a call alarm, which we did see from the desk, we could see who's calling. But um, if you guys are familiar with pulse oximeters, um, it's the little finger clip guy that kind of reads your oxygen stats and your heart rate. Um, and they would just put those, every COVID patient was supposed to, who was on more than room air, was supposed to have a pulse oximeter um, reading. And so once it got below, um, and we could kind of fiddle with them a little bit with respiratory therapist approval, but fiddle with it so we could set the setting lower to about 90%, it would start beeping if it would go below 90. Um, so we just have to kind of find the beeps and the beep could be the probe is just a little bit off their finger. Um, it could be totally off. They could be out of bed, um, or they could be desaturating. Um, and you know, you can walk in someone's setting at 48% and then you have to almost treat every alarm. Like someone is desaturating critically. Um, so that was one of the most exhausting parts of working on a med surge floor turn COVID was just the um, alarm fatigue and um just kind of the stress response that you get it kind of starts to fade after a while like you've been hearing alarms for 12 hours or 10 hours at that point and but you still have to respond to everything like it could be an emergency and that was going on you know we have surges of covid i mean especially i just remember around the holidays each holiday you know people would gather and stuff well it was a little hard to deal with because I was on the COVID unit every holiday last year, not with my family. So I understand people wanting to gather after being, you know, quarantined and social distancing. But then the, we'd see about seven to 12 days after a holiday, we'd see a surge um, of people getting COVID. We'd have whole families get COVID. We had, at one point, we had a mom and a dad and a uh, disabled son all on our floor with COVID. And I think this father ended up passing away and the son ended up passing away um so it was just really hard to deal with um just seeing families of people um and also having to communicate with patients families for them because with lots amount of oxygen on people it's really hard to communicate we would have um before COVID our, our criteria was if you're over 10 liters of oxygen you need to go to intermediate or ICU and then with COVID um, it kind of crept up. It was, okay, 15 liters, okay, 15 liters on the breather. And they introduced these um, machines called OptiFlows. If anyone's not familiar, it's basically like a tube, a nasal tube with the prongs in the nose um, that they could, we could technically crank them up to 80 liters of oxygen. And then we could also titrate FiO2 up to 100% FiO2, which is like pure oxygen blasting into their face. And of course, we were working with respiratory therapists. We weren't technically allowed to touch the machines, but just given the vast number of people on them, we would have to, you know, replace. They had uh, saline bags attached for humidity so people wouldn't dry out too so fast. But it was still, you know, it was a difficult time communicating uh, with full code patients. We'd bring them up to 65 liters and see how long we could keep them on there until an ICU bed opens up or until a vent opens up on the ICU floor. Um, so we would have full code patients on 65 liters of oxygen for days and definitely not what is good practice or is normal practice, but we really just didn't have anywhere to put them. 
happen, so it became an emergency, which you never know with those false talks going off all, all the time. Really, I don't know who's having an emergency or who just got up to go to the bathroom, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was kind of those patients we would try to keep an eye on a little bit closer. Um, oftentimes, we would have to double those patients together um, just because they would require more frequent monitoring if we could. And so just being in the room with another OptiFlow patient, we could just keep an eye on both of them. Even if they weren't your patient, you know, of course, you respond to any alarm as a nurse on the floor. Um, so that was the fall and the winter. Um, dealing with that, um, that was still our no visitor policy and definitely hard dealing with end of life care for people. Um, generally, it was expected in, in terms of Okay, we have had to talk about code status. We've had the physician talk about code status to family members saying, you know, they're not going to make it or and or we don't have the resources to help them make it. And if they're generally over like 65 or if they're obese, they have worse outcomes than a younger patient. And so we had to kind of prioritize patients, unfortunately. And um, you know, that was difficult to have to say we don't have anywhere for them to go for your mom to go or for your grandma to go. So unfortunately, they're going to have to stay here, but you still can't come here. So we will be with them <laughs> up until the end. And um, yeah, that was definitely one of the most difficult parts was having still six patients and having someone you know is on the way out, but like you can't stay in the room with them for very long. You have other people, you know, calling and stuff. And um, the thing about COVID is it's pneumonia, right? So it's basically filling your lungs up with fluid and gunk and you become hypoxic and you become confused as well so people get very confused at the end they get agitated they can get aggressive um the oxygen that we put on them is painful it starts digging into your face and if they're already a dnr we can um go against good practice and layer a non-rebreather on top of those those uh 65 to 80 liters of oxygen to apply another additional 15 liters on top of them um, so that's just a lot of pressure on their face and it's uncomfortable and it's painful. They would start to get sores or, you know, redness. So we try to pad them as much as we could, but we still needed to ensure like a good seal on their face. Um, so it was uncomfortable and people would often try to remove it. They say, you're killing me. I'm dying because of this. I'm like, I know it feels like that. I'm sorry. Um, but of course, they're usually not in their right mind at that time. So you just try to explain it the best you can and just keep monitoring them and making sure they're not pulling their oxygen off. Um, that was definitely hard. And when you have to make the call to a family member saying, okay, they can't really consent to things anymore. They're disoriented. They don't know where they are, what's going on in the day. Those are kind of indicators that you have to find someone else that can become power of attorney and can consent for them. And just trying to explain the situation to non-medical people can be difficult. You know, in the middle of your shift, you're trying to do other things. You're saying, well, I need to apply, like, risk restraints to your mom so she doesn't pull off her oxygen and pass away tonight. So it's kind of those nitty-gritty things that you kind of have to get to with people that you'd like to be a little bit more delicate and a little bit more gentle with them. But it's, um, you know, I guess it's a crisis scenario. But that was going on for months. <laughs> so you kind of get good at um, trying to explain to family members the best you can. Um, and being concise with what you're telling them, because sometimes doctors don't want to hit the nitty gritty with them. You know, they only see a patient for five to 10 minutes in the morning when they do their rounds. And um, they don't always, you know, see the 12 hours of a shift of people declining or people getting better. They can't really give an accurate 
description of exactly how their night went type of thing. Um, so yeah, having people in wrist restraints with so much oxygen on them and still trying to do cares for them and giving meds with someone with on so much oxygen is, can be very troublesome. Their swallow can start to go if they're being blasted with so much oxygen. Um, you can literally feel if you put your hand up in front of someone's mouth, like the oxygen just bursting out of their mouth. And that brought up concerns with infection protocol, as we were told that it was contact droplet eye protection, which is, you know, the gown, the face shield, our goggles, and just a regular hospital mask and gloves, of course. Um, so that's what we were being told was appropriate. And I said to my manager, I said, I can feel the air rushing out of their mouths as I'm taking care of them. And I, of course, was given one N95 for the year. And my first shift that I had been floated in the spring to the COVID unit, I had a patient on a vent. So I thought that the N95 is, you know, disposable. So let's see one time you said, I'd thrown my N95 away after my first shift on a COVID unit, <laughs> back when my floor wasn't particularly COVID filled, I had been floated to the ICU. So I had thrown away my N95 a little early on in the in the pandemic for myself. <laughs> kind of screwed myself there. I guess I just didn't realize that we were really actually not going to be getting any more. So I went through most of the summer and the fall without an N95. As we were being told, our patients on our floor do not need one because they're not on BiPAP or CPAP or a vent. But still on. unit refused to supply you another N95. So I had asked my manager about three times. I said, I have asthma. I'm not comfortable. I feel like I should be getting another another mask. And she's like, well, we gave you one. What happened to it? I, th- I thought they were disposable. I am just, I'm so sorry that I interrupted you, Ema. You have been telling such a powerful story. And I'm on the edge of my seat. Our faces, I can see hee hee. We are like jaw dropped. And... I want to hear more and I'm just taking, giving you a minute, taking a minute. I'm, I am grateful that we can have this conversation with you today because that's some fucked up, dangerous, dangerous shit. All of the shit you've, all of the story has its own pieces of, I just like could, we could dig into all of it, any of it, any piece right. is an example of, gosh, your year. And we, what have we hit? Have we even hit a year? We've hit one year into your career, one year. And you're telling me that for this year that we've been listening to this, we've, we've heard your, this story and there are only, this is only parts of your story. And the parts that we've heard you didn't get an N95 mask because you threw it away because they are disposable. Right. That was the idea. They're supposed to be disposable. They are still. I like, if this is the thing that I die on, they are still disposable. The fact that you are forced to wear a dirty mask is illegal in every other situation. And it's inappropriate and it's harmful and it's causing direct lives to be lost. And so I am just sitting here grateful for you today. Of all my coworkers, one of maybe four that did not get COVID. 
Now that you're on this podcast, they're going to like reach out to you for a study of like, how do we, we're going to test your blood because something is going on. You're obviously immune to COVID because you're giving forceful air through someone's nose, nasal passages, where we know COVID lives and then forcing it out of their mouth into your mouth. Basically. And nose, right? Like, because you're in there all the time and you're caring for them and it's been a year. Right, and we all have theories, like, um, I had gotten really sick in December and January, December 2019 and January 2020, kind of before COVID was on the U.S. radar, so I was kind of like, hmm, hmm, I wonder if that was it, because I was really sick back to back, like, almost only four weeks apart, I'd gotten really sick, so I was kind of wondering, I wonder if I'd gotten early, you know, my dad actually does a lot of business in China, and I don't think he'd been there recently, but you never know. There was that little sick contact, I suppose. Um, but I don't know. I, I really don't know. I'm really thankful for it. Um, I, honestly, it was something I had to think about a lot because I have asthma and I'm not like the most petite person. So we know that people, heavier people don't do as well. So I had a whole contingency plan planned out. I said, I have, you know, a garbage bag. I'm going to put myself in a garbage bag. My friends are going to drive me to the hospital in their trunks and I don't get them sick, but I don't, I can't afford like the hospital bill of the ambulance ride, that sort of thing. Um, and we would kind of joke, I'm like, oh, I want Brooke, my, you know, she's like one of my good friends on the floor, she's a CNA, I said, Brooke, I want you to come over if I have to be in the ICU and give me a wax before they put the catheter in. I don't want any of my coworkers seeing me being any mustiness and just keep me clean. Um, I don't want a G-tube, I'd rather not have a G-tube or a trach and peg, but I know I didn't have those legally written out beforehand that that would happen because I'm pretty young. Um, contingency plan kind of in my head of like, what would happen? If I were to get COVID, because when I get sick, I get pretty sick. Um, so I was kind of fearful of that. But also at the same time, um, you know, being young, I know I had a better chance of survival if I were to get sick. So that's kind of how I justified it. <laughs> I'm young. I'll be okay. You have to. Emo, what kind of like trauma do you think came from being so young and having to plan out what might happen? if you got sick with a deadly disease? Trauma, that's a good question. It's something I haven't had to think about. Um, But now that I I quit my job about three weeks ago, I've actually had time to sit and think about things and it's kind of messed me up a bit just recently. I haven't had to think about it until recently, just going about my daily life. And I'm like, gosh, what did I just have to do? Like, what was I doing? Was that really me? (laughs) I always forget, like, I feel like I, I'm not 24. I feel like I'm much, much older. I feel like my maturity is that of like 30, 40-something-year-old, just given the things I've had to deal with. And I just, yes, I feel very different from my friends now, too, like people my own age. I'm like, I can relate to you guys still, but you guys can't really relate to me. And it's definitely something I need to be thinking about going to therapy and just talking about it. Because the only people I feel comfortable talking about is my actual coworkers who did it with me. And we do have some good conversations um, about the topic. Um, so I'm thankful that at least I have my support of people who literally know exactly what we were doing because they were on the floor with me. We were doing it together. Um, I have uh, my two other night shift leads, um, who, uh, one who trained me and the one who left for the ICU um, earlier this year. And then I became more of a um, the full-time lead. So... It has been interesting kind of talking to them about, and they're young too. I mean, 
25, 26, the other two makeshift leads um, on the COVID unit and kind of how they're dealing with it. I have my one that I've talked about, like, hey, like, do you have any, like, stress response anymore? Like, do you get anxious or, like, do you feel stressed? He's like, no. I'm like, okay, is that a bad thing? He's like, no, we're just nurses. Like, this is how we do it. I'm like, um, oh. I don't know, Andrew. Like, I really don't know because he's like, we're just getting better at it and we're just more used to it. I'm like, yeah. I guess, I guess that's one way to think about it, um, which is kind of sad. My other night shift friend, uh, we do get to talk about it quite a bit. Now she's in the ICU and she sees it even more. The ventilated patients are even more intense to take care of. And so um, she's definitely talked about maybe herself feeling some PTSD. And she's been telling me, she's like, oh, if you find a good therapist, let me know. <laughs> like a support group, let me know. Um, so definitely just talking to my peers around me, I'm like, okay, I guess PTSD is a thing. I haven't really had to think about it until recently. And it's probably something I'll carry with me for a while, but hopefully not in a way that will like negatively affect my life, hopefully, or my relationships or how I think about myself. Um, that would be the hope. What you're describing sounds like, um, combat veteran. Yes, and I've gotten that comment a lot. I had made a TikTok video um, about it, and a lot of the comments were either like, thank you for your service, Wow. you have PTSD. <laughs> really, guys? Do I? <laughs> I mean, no one's here to make that diagnosis for you. I mean, join us on our next episode. <laughs> we need to give the links for support groups like this because that it, in in the research and in the journals, and books about combat vets often help can come in the form of one-on-one counseling, like you alluded to and mentioned, and also group, um, you know, your, your people that get it, the people that are the only ones maybe who get it being facilitated by a professional so that, uh, if someone has an idea about what's normal it can be cross-referenced, like fact-checked quickly because one person's numbing is another person's overreaction is another person's rage. Like they're normal, but it's actually not healthy. It's a response and that can be kind of clarified by a facilitator. So you're bringing up a lot of points that we're totally 100% behind you and want you to find help if you're feeling that. And if this is part of that, like sharing your story might be really powerful or it might have the opposite or, you know, both effects of, oh my gosh, I have to face this or. Right. Exactly. And that's where right now I'm kind of um, toying with the idea of either making more videos about my experience, um, but also that attention kind of on, especially social media can draw a lot of negative comments and unfortunately of course i'm still a little sensitive i I don't want to read negative comments i don't want to um have to kind of defend my experience to people who don't have the same experience um and so that's why i have not posted since my first video when i right after i quit my job i think it's about three weeks i've just been struggling with like what do i even say do i want to say more um that sort of thing um is definitely, but yeah, definitely support group sounds nice. <laughs> and reaching an audience that I mean is a little bit, maybe more understanding and empathetic towards at least my experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, strangers on the internet are not that type, though, you know, sharing your story can be powerful 
if you turn off the comments or don't read the comments. Hey, there's an idea. I will say, and this is the last thing I'll say about it. I'll say in my trauma-informed work, trauma-sensitive work, I'm not a therapist, right? I don't give diagnoses either. But I do know at least in the realm of birth and what I've heard about combat vets and what I've heard about PTSD is the sooner you get professional help and look into it with a professional, um, hopefully someone specifically trained in trauma. And I think, and I think we have options online. I know for a fact that it's possible Mm -hmm. to find a trauma counselor online and it can help and it's weird and you have to turn yourself video off (laughs) because it's super weird to go to therapy and see yourself. It's like having a mirror in the therapist's office. It's like, um, this is inappropriate. Can you turn this around? (laughs) But I know it can happen for some folks that works and the sooner you can heal, start to heal. Yeah. Maybe have faster results and more positive results sooner. Sure, and that's definitely something I am seriously considering. I was even joking about needing therapy. I went through a bad breakup last year too, <laughs> of course. Oh gosh, had my had to kick my partner out of our house and move and that sort of thing. So that's been something I've been thinking about. But it's just the point of like, well, I'm still functioning. Like I'm still getting my stuff done. I'm still paying my bills and having friendships. So it's just the point of like, I just need to do it for myself, even if I'm not struggling to do it before I start to struggle. It's actually important. Um, but yeah, anyways, I can, um, you had mentioned, um, the N95 mask and I just wanted to bring up a point on kind of how we dealt with the, um, the mask shortage. So, um, back when we were on, we had been moved down to like the rehab floor away from COVID. We were given, you know, the surgical masks and still told you need to wear these until they're visibly soiled, visibly soiled. So, um, you know, keeping a mask on, um, two, three weeks at a time, that sort of thing. You can just feel them getting flimsy and frayed. Um, and we would have to kind of hide them on the unit because uh, people would kind of enter the hospital looking for masks. They would take masks off the walls, that sort of thing. We couldn't have them in the PPE dispensers on next to the rooms because people would take them. And even just having that for like employees, we'd have to kind of like, if a respiratory therapist wants a new mask, we say, like, you really need one, that sort of thing. It was just kind of bad, the hoarding situation. And then to see like the providers come in for their five to 10 minute visit with like the the very nice Papper um, helmets that we didn't have. We had these old Papper hoods that we use for, you know, TB, other airborne disease that were like the whole hood with the tube going out and it's attached to the belt around you. Um, with a big battery pack in it that you cannot hear anything the patient is saying at all. Um, so we had two of those for the unit that they even told us, you know, you don't need to wear those. It's not airborne. Oh my gosh. But some people do. Some people do. I had a couple with my other nurse that actually didn't get COVID that I know if he wore the Papper hood in every single room, but I mean, his life was miserable trying to, um, do his work in a full Papper hood, um, in every patient. COVID patient was, um, I don't know how he did it, but he has four little kids at home. So he did it for them. Um, I, at that time was like living by myself. And I was like, you know what, if I get COVID, it's really just me. Um, I can isolate myself better than he can. I respect his choice, of course. Um, but then once we were getting, you know, full COVID unit again, the N95 mask, we were layering surgical mask uh, below it. A 95 and then another one uh, over it. So you'd have about three masks on, um, which, you know, sucked. 
<laughs> it was hot, it was sweaty. You can't, they can barely hear you, especially with all the oxygen that they can't even hear you anyways. And you're trying to yell at them through, you know, three layers of a mask. And I was just to keep, um, the first layer was, you know, to keep the, your mouth humidity off the mask. It doesn't get moist. And then the other layer is to protect from the COVID particles on your mask. So you can touch it after and put it in your little paper bag that they gave us. It was a paper bag and one COVID mask. Oh, and then five, excuse me. Which um, are all appropriate, inappropriate uses of those masks, right? Right. Not, no, that's not how regulated. No, no. The manufacturer pretty much crossed out all of their recommendations because we just decided not to abide by them anymore. We said in a perfect world we would, in normal times we would, but not right now. It's not normal time. So it was a lot of COVID kind of changing rules for things. And me as a new nurse, I was just learning like those rules and stuff. So it was kind of hard to be like, oh, we are allowed to do this now. Like, this isn't exactly my scope. This isn't exactly a good practice. But it was just kind of, you know, they keep telling us it's a crisis. I'm like, well, it's been it's been a crisis. It has been a crisis. So I was actually lucky enough to, um, my uncle is a pulmonologist, critical care doc in Cleveland. So he was able to send me about eight N95s. Um, so I like, personally had to have a contact who was a physician, who was a critical care pulmonologist, send me masks um, so that I could use them. And he even like sent me tips on how to keep them sterile. It's like UV lamp boxes, which of course I didn't have, but it was nice that he was trying to look out for me. And, um, you know, my, but his wife is my aunt, is a infectious disease nurse practitioner. So she was, of course, fibrogacids not knowing or knowing that I did not have an N95 wearing into these patients with oxygen and coughing. She says, you need to wear one in every room. Someone's coughing. I said, I, I wish <laughs> I would be great if I could. Um, so yeah, they made a special effort to send me those and I did give them out to the other nurses on my unit who had some loved ones or stuff like that. Um, so I still have some, I still have some just in case, but we were supplied here not too long ago. Um, let's see, March. April, we got more N95s on the floor, and um, those K-N95s, what we call the duck bill mask, uh, is not as thick as an N95, but they, I think they just ran out or they got too expensive for a hospital to supply. Um, so, <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, so we do have masks now, and I appreciate uh, everyone's concern. Like, oh, I have some, let me send them. I think we got the supply now in most hospitals. It was just more so like last year, the rationing and everything. We ran out of the plastic gowns um, we had used as more like a paper material, which they still worked, I guess. They still worked. They were still like, uh, got them wet and they weren't damp. They would repel water, but it was just interesting going from, it was actually nice because the plastic gowns, they heat you up and you're just sweating. You immediately start to sweat, especially in a room with humidified oxygen. It's hot in there. And just any, any tasks, you come out dripping in sweat. And it would be disgusting. <laughs> it smells so bad at the end of 12 hours. It was really gross. And God forbid you have to do an RT or a code in a plastic gown in a 95. Oh my gosh. I tell you, that was a workout for sure. <laughs> that was definitely a workout. I'm glad we kind of got the paper ones, even though we kind of ran out of the good ones. So it was at least more breathable and it was a little bit more doable for us. And we were allowed to wear gowns room to room with some, you know, rules about how close to the desk and how far you can travel in a, in a dirty gown, that sort of thing. But yeah, it was, um, you're kind of stuck in a patient room if you're all 
um, bound up with your PPE, if you need to go grab something, like oftentimes patients will ask you for, you know, I want crackers. Okay, now I want ice. You know what, I actually need some lip balm. So it's like every single request is a separate trip out of the room, which, you know, you're still going to get the stuff for them, but you need to kind of wait, peek your head out the hallway, see if anyone's walking by, say, hey, can you, uh, can you grab me some stuff right quick so I don't have to, you know, waste this PPE and then put more on because, you know, you don't want to go in any clean utility or nutrition or really dirty, ugh, dirty PPE. No, that's a nightmare. So we actually did get some deployed stuff. Um, from some like clinics, offices, that sort of thing, surgery of people. This was back, this was in December. They, they finally got some deployed staff just to be on the unit, just to help us get gather supplies and to respond to alarms. Because there's too much to do, um, given you have five to six patients, and it's just a lot to do. So they deployed some staff to help us, which we greatly appreciated. Any help just being at the desk to answer a phone. <laughs> You say if this is a family member or a physician, we need to be on the phone ASAP. And so that, that took a while to get some help on the floor. But then we did, and it was great. And I really appreciate those people that did not volunteer. They did not volunteer. <laughs> to go to the COVID unit, they were reassigned. And very rarely we would have people refuse to go on the COVID floor, and they would be reassigned um, if they didn't want to be there. You know, can't force anyone, so they would just have to go home or go to a different floor because, you know, short everywhere. So healthcare professionals could refuse to work on a COVID floor, and if that was their reassignment from their home unit, then they would be sent home. Was there any discussion of um, healthcare professionals that didn't have the COVID vaccine being assigned or not assigned to the COVID unit? Um... Not so much, um, not so much in my experience, if they did not want to work on the COVID unit, they generally were saying, okay, well, you're going to miss a day of work then. And I've only had, I only worked with about two nurses that chose not to be vaccinated and they still came to work and chose to work around COVID. So not so much in my experience saying, oh, I'm not vaccinated. I can't work here. It's, it's it was more of a. I'm still going to work here. I'm not going to get vaccinated type of thing. I'll take my chances, um, which was kind of crazy to me, but it's their, their opinion, I suppose. Um, but, yeah. Um, going back to, I guess, when the, the vaccine came out, um, we, it came out kind of like late December, early January, and I... Was actually given i was able to go see my family right after christmas i worked christmas and i got to see them after christmas i did delay getting my vaccine by two two or three days and i just remember getting my first dose and being so happy i like cried tears of joy in my car i like had even like made a little bit longer a snapchat story to post and i ended up deleting it because i thought it was covering up me crying in my car like getting a vaccine but i was really excited and i was really um i was like oh finally i don't feel like this disease could kill me every day that I work around it. And I was very happy and it was just kind of um, astonishing to be knowing that they were asking people to get the vaccine and saying, it's going to expire if we don't give it out. So can people please get vaccinated? I was like, what? Really? I would think people would be lining up. You would think it'd be like a crisis trying to just get it out to everybody. 
but not the other way around. So that was a little bit um, jarring to me. And of course, I have to think about it. My perspective, I work around COVID all the time. I know exactly how bad it is. And the normal person does not. They see like the politicized news articles and stuff and people's little random stories about having COVID and not being bad, blah, blah, blah. So how did yeah. that change the way that you looked at people who were COVID deniers or anti-vaxxers through this? Because you had worked around it, but also you have that emotional response to getting yours. Yeah, so it definitely changed my perspective on people. Um, I was just like, wow, I wish I could be that ignorant. <laughs> you know, I wish I didn't know what I knew. And it shouldn't have to take you being a COVID charge nurse or a COVID nurse to understand that this disease kills people and it's preventable at this point. And I mean, I've never been an anti-vaxxer, so I respected science and the medical community and, you know, evidence-based practice for forever. So it's just kind of like, well, I guess you just don't understand. Or I guess you just have a different perspective that I'm expected to respect. And, you know, we have to treat every patient equally. And I always prided myself on not generally trying to look at vaccination status on my COVID patients. Um, I mean, that would kind of, only reason I would look to see if, to just kind of guess how severe their symptoms are going to be if they're vaccinated versus unvaccinated, that sort of thing. Um, but that didn't really become an issue up until recently because not a, not a lot of people are getting vaccinated at first. Um, but yeah, it's important to try to stay um, what is it? Stay in the middle and not try to like express my political opinions to anybody. I mean, I've encouraged the vaccine about my friends, saying, you know, I got it, I'm okay. I, even my coworkers were hesitant, you know, like, oh, I'm gonna wait for so and so to get it before I get it, that sort of thing. And I mean, I guess I understand it's a new thing. It seemed very fast, but I mean, going through almost a whole, you know, what was that eight months then of COVID, and then to get a vaccine, I was like, yeah, well, this is. We were looking for an answer, and this is the answer, guys. Like I know, <laughs> I wish we had more, um, but this is this is it. This is what we came up with, and um, yeah. So definitely, of course, they made it like a political thing. It's already knew like my family members who were maybe more right leaning. I was not going to be getting along with some of them. I had not spoken to in a while. Um, no real confrontation about anything. I just don't have the energy to argue. I don't have the energy. It's not my job to be educating the public about public health. I mean, I guess in part it is my job, but at that point I was like, I'm too busy. <laughs> I'm too exhausted. I'm too busy. I'm just trying to get through my each week and I don't have time for people that are going to be um, disrespectful about it, especially. Your capacity is overwhelmed by the need to do your job professionally and to how yeah. many times do we hold our tongue as the nurse? And that's you know, that's because we have biases and it's because we have questions and it's because, you know, our patients have different choices than us, but you have experienced some, what sounds like to me, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or don't, but you know, I don't want to label something that is part of your story, but it, it sounds like you've also heard a lot of misinformation, wrong information, lies, gaslighting, manipulation, and a little bit of, um, I don't know what I would call like refusing a safe work environment. What is, is there a word for that? Abuse. 
abuse. I was thinking of like torture, abuse. Um, and then to turn around and say, this is your job. This is what nurses do. Stuff it in a place that doesn't affect your work. Come to work or don't come to, like, this is your choice kind of thing. Like you either work in the COVID unit or you it chose to be a nurse. It chose to be a nurse. So these harmful, repetitive stories that you're hearing from your, the people that are training you possibly from the nurses that have been there longer than you, from your administrators and your managers, from the people at the highest level in your healthcare and the CDC changing recommendations on aerosolized, you know, transmission to support hospital choice to not purchase masks and be ready for a crisis situation because they are, as we have alluded to the front lines, right. Of a, a healthcare crisis without those proper, like it's a nurse shortage. It's a mask shortage. No, 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 no. Those are all stories that make everyone feel better. And, you know, right. I get people kind of ask me like, so why haven't they used like Hydra, whatever the president at the time was pushing or Invermectin? Why haven't they been using that? I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't get to make those decisions. The physicians order meds and I follow what orders. And we would get emails about mandates and stuff like that, but things would change so rapidly that it was all word of mouth. Mm -hmm. It was all word of mouth. What are we doing today? If nurses are hearing that, if healthcare professionals are hearing that, which is screwed up, we know, because if some doctors are going into a room with a full headgear piece covering obvi for aerosolized deadly virus, easy to contract deadly virus in that room. But then everyone else is like, oh no, you're totally disposable, more disposable than our fucking disposable masks. You go right on in and you call us and we'll start your PTO when you get COVID and die. And we won't save a bed for you if you do. And that's gruesome way for me to say that, but it's true and it's confusing and it's straight up what you are telling us It's straight up what other folks are telling us on the daily. It's confusing. So if the public is supposed to decipher, you know, the story that's out there is it's normal and we can fight this. It's, it's actually, it's actually really difficult to fight it with, you know, in that system, it's really difficult to fight it with all this misinformation. It's really difficult to fight it without the majority of folks getting vaccines being such a new, I mean, not that coronavirus is new, there have been coronaviruses um, before. I remember in January getting a coronavirus HKU patient. I was like, well, you mean coronavirus? Like the one I've been hearing about on the news? They're like, no, no, it's a different one. I'm like, okay, so it's just a different mutation, strain, that sort of thing. Um, it is confusing. And we were treating patients with um, remdesivir antiviral medication through the IV. Um, basically any COVID patient, if their renal function or liver function was healthy enough to support that, or they weren't critical, like if they were on more than, you know, 35 liters of oxygen, they could get remdesivir. And they were also starting the convalescent plasma treatment of recovered COVID patients, um, which plasma is uh, hard to come by. It's expensive. Um, not everyone qualified for it. And I'm um, trying to remember which one they decided was not actually effective. I think it was the convalescent plasma they decided it was actually, you know what? We've been doing this now for a year, year and a half. It's not actually working. I was like, great, oh, great. If we had had studies, if we had time to do studies, that sort of thing, we would know that before we had to do it. Um, 
So it is kind of frustrating because it is a lot of work to run plasma. It's a blood product, it requires more frequent monitoring, that sort of thing. Um, just adding that on top of all of our responsibilities before I was like, gosh, it's another thing we were doing. That was like a waste, not a waste of time, but you know, we were trying at that point, we're trying anything. Um, yeah, it is confusing and I just wish that we had, you know, more data to back stuff up. And I'm really, really excited to see how research goes in the next couple of years and to find out what, what really was going on or how to treat stuff better and what we were doing. Um, I'm really interested to see kind of studies that happen and data that comes out to show like what the heck was going on. <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah, for sure. Ema, I have two questions um, before we close out. You can always say, um, no, Mandy, I'm not, I'm not here for that. Uh, <laughs> in your um, kind of a, at the top of this, at the top of this episode, we talked about your shifting, your shift in perspective, and and I'm so grateful for what you have shared in that, and your unique perspective as a new grad. Oh my gosh, you had a brand new idea of what a nurse did coming out of school, and then did you? <laughs> you could never have imagined, but you know, you're you're in you're in meetings prioritizing who survives and who dies first. Um, what's, what's changed in what a nurse is for you to you now, or, or are you wanting to be a nurse or has that, has that changed for you? Yeah, definitely as a new grad, you know, I was learning kind of the basic stuffs and, you know, following my lead and following my managers, um, whatever they were telling me that becoming the charge nurse, we had a lot more autonomy than we did before COVID. Um, you know, we were the ones who had to identify patients who needed the ICU beds, that sort of thing. Like my nurse would come to me and say, okay, their oxygen requirements went up. I said, okay, we need to get them off the floor. Um, but then it would come down to how fast are they actually deteriorating and the one that's going faster needs to go first. Um, so these are all kind of decisions that we would have to bring up to the doctors and stuff. And at night, I don't know, uh, not every hospital does this, but we were changed to telehospitalists. So these were physicians over the phone and over webcam that did not work for our hospital system normally. They were like contracted employers, uh, providers, excuse me, um, and of course, we'd have ones from like all over, have one in Hawaii, one in Israel, that sort of thing. So it was kind of like having to explain to them what our criteria are at this general moment and what we can do. Um, and we were, you know, responsible for checking ICU for beds and even we wouldn't even bring it up if there wasn't a bed. We say, yeah, they need the ICU, but there's no beds, so they have to stay here. So what can we do for them here on our floor? Um, so it was a bit of a struggle trying to work with these physicians that are not the, you know, the general hospitalists that see these patients every day. It was just the kind of like the, the night watch over people that we'd have to explain what's going on, who this person is, what they need, and ask for that ourselves. So there's a lot of responsibility and having to be charged nurse and kind of having to talk my nurses through that and say, you need to like ask for exactly what you want because you know this physician is not covering and not watching or charting. They're not looking at these numbers all the time, you know, they have however many 90 to 100, 150 patients they're watching out for. So it's like you need to be the one um, implementing and like needing to raise level of care and that sort of thing. So that was different for COVID. 
I think we had a lot more responsibility to our patients to be watching out for them, um, given that our physicians, even the ones that would follow the patients during the hospital stay in-house, they you know, see them for five to 10 minutes in the morning if they would even go in the room, that sort of thing. So it was a lot more, you need to be keeping track of how this patient's doing very, very closely um, because no one else is gonna be checking up on them really until the morning. So that changed my perspective a lot. I did not realize. Um, the scope of our practice, I guess, and I don't know if it was in a in a actually like legal way, blah blah blah. But um, definitely, I still do want to be a nurse. I actually am had an interview with ambulatory surgery here. I just moved up to the city um, from where I was in Central Illinois up to Chicago, so I'd be looking at doing something different, something not at the bedside so much with some patients that generally are more healthy and um, not COVID. I definitely need a break from COVID for a little while. Um, but the thought didn't really cross my mind not to be a nurse anymore because that's what, you know, I have a bachelor's degree in nursing, like what? I need to do nursing things. And, you know, I still have to pay rent and pay bills and I need to start working as soon as I can, really. I've been able to take three weeks off and that's just because I have a, a savings account and not a lot of people have that at least at my age, too, to be able to, like, just depend on that for a bit. So I'll have to be getting back into the field here pretty soon. Um, so, yeah, I definitely still want to be a nurse, um, more comfortable in a charge position where I don't have to be making these really, really hard decisions about people. I think that was a little bit too much for me. I have to keep doing that. Um, and it, it's hard to it's hard to conceive that you're making, can be making life or death decisions for people that are two, three, almost four times my age. You know, we did it with those couple of really old patients that are like, I want to respect all your decisions and I want to respect your wishes of what you want, but we just don't, can't provide that. And to be having to say that, it was really hard. Oh, wow. Ama, congratulations for quitting. Thanks for being on your third week of not doing shit for nobody. <laughs> I am thrilled for you. I'm thrilled to see, oh, to hear about all those lucky patients in your future. You know, I had a little cardstock in my pocket with soap notes for maybe the first three years. So the fact that you were like soap notes, we come up with the plan of fucking care for these folks and we call and get the order that and that's not like the plan of care. Like I'm going to tell the doctor that they need a Tums because it's the middle <laughs> of the night and they just kind of want to be told like those little things. No, 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 not. This is like the most grandest, most important, most biggest piece type of plan of care. And you were doing that as a nurse and to question that and to say, you know, I wasn't able to handle that. Here's a little also insider secret. No one handles that in a way that they tell us is the right, right? Like no one handles that without the, it affecting them in other ways. And you handle it, meaning you do it, but it is not easy and it should not be. Um, that should not be one person's job. That should not, oh my gosh, it should not have fallen like that. So you did it. So check the box, you handled it and then- <laughs> It was too much, and we had actually gotten a new nurse manager here in the spring, 
um, our nurse manager left and they had opened up a like an emergency COVID ICU that was a nursing simulation floor. So I don't actually had real patients. So she went up there to um, manage that for them. So we got a new nurse manager who was a, um, an OB provider. She was an OB nurse practitioner. So her coming in with very, very limited med surge knowledge. And of course it's hard to get COVID experience in that at that point being almost totally new to like med surge nursing and stuff she's just kind of going with whatever her superiors would say so that was kind of maybe more where my departure started getting this new manager who just wasn't um you know on the floor she was not taking care of these patients um she you know it was just different and i had asked for a raise i was making the same amount that i had made as a new grad with the, you know, two extra dollars an hour as charge. And that was not enough for me to want to stay and keep doing that type of work. I felt like I was doing a little bit too much for what I was getting paid to do. And I have even trained the travel nurses we would get and they were making two to three times what we're making. Um, so it was just at the point where I'm like, I could be making more money doing the same thing and not have to be lead and get to travel to do it. And while I'm not really considering travel at the moment, that was a big reason why I left, just knowing there's other opportunities out there that would compensate me better for my work. And yeah, just asking for a reason, getting just flat out denied, um, did hurt a little bit because I felt like I was worth more than what I was making. So that was a big indicator of me wanting to leave as well, to be honest. Absolutely. That's, that's, totally inappropriate and out of line that you that that was your pay and no hazard pay and they didn't do anything when you responded um my last question and i don't want to say goodbye we could talk forever if you could leave your fellow colleagues that are listening in medicine with a few words of advice what would they be well first of all i'll say thank you you guys are amazing um um just to look out for yourself and for your coworkers as much as you can because at the end of the day, it is your professional license that you need to be worried about. And who knows what type of lawsuits are going to be coming around because of COVID. Um, and just to be strong and just think about yourself and what you really want and what you can handle. Because I got to a point where I didn't think I was going to be giving the best care. So I had to get out of there before that happened. So just to be mindful of yourself and take care of yourself. Oh, that's really powerful. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for being on here. Powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing. And if anyone that's listening um, is going through and can relate to Ema's story or any has any information on how you are handling your trauma and your experiences now, either in a group setting or an individual setting, we are here for it. Let us know and fill out the application so you can share your story here on the Pulse Check podcast. We really are grateful for you listening. Thank you, Ema, and we will see you guys next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. We wanted to leave you with a quick stat and something to think about until we see you next time. According to a 2018 report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the prevalence of sexual harassment in academic medicine is almost double that of other science and engineering specialties. This presents a serious danger that ripples into patient safety, clinical outcomes, and burnout, which leads to costly loss of talent. How much safer could medicine be if nurses and physicians weren't also battling sexual harassment day in and day out?
If you or anyone you know has a story to share, please contact us on Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast. We'd love to share your story.